0: We are five weeks into 2021, so it's probably about time that I wrap up 2020. Chris Davies and I spent a good deal of time talking about the state of electric vehicles, and now it's time to share that with all of you. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're capping off our state of series of interviews with electric vehicles. I spoke with Chris Davies from Slash Gear back in September, and it's been review after review since then, so now we're going to get caught up. Is this the end of a series? I don't know, but kind of looks like it plus we've got a tech yeah segment featuring a set of earbuds from tcl i'm unboxing them on youtube this week too and is that weird probably but weird is how we roll here on the benefit of a doubt podcast and we're going to get to all of that but first we have to dive into the news of the week And as always, before we get to the news, it's freelance corner time. Over at Android Central, I published a look at the Samsung Galaxy S21 Plus versus the Samsung Galaxy S20 Plus from last year. The long and short of it is... They're basically the same phone, but one is $200 cheaper than the other. And I have to say that here because the evergreen people at Android Central won't let me say it over there because then it wouldn't be evergreen. That makes sense. But there is one big thing that differentiates between the two phones, and I'm not going to tell you what it is here. You're going to have to go see for yourself at AndroidCentral.com. Plus, over at Digital Trends, I reviewed the Logitech Circle View doorbell camera, which is Logitech's first offering in the doorbell space. The twist here is that Logitech's doorbell only works with Apple. Android users need not apply. I mean, it's fine if that's how Logitech wants to roll, but maybe I'm just a little too picky. Over at LifeWire, I had a couple of lists this week, the most notable being the best MP3 players for runners if you ever run... You know, on purpose, you know, go give it a look. Xiaomi launched a pair of concepts over the last two weeks. The first was last Friday after I'd recorded my script, and that was the Mi Air Charge technology. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's charging your devices over the air with 5 watts of continuous power. This is not the first time anyone has ever talked about sending power over the air, and the limitations remain the same as always. First, the technology has to be integrated into consumer devices, which is not yet, and probably won't be for quite some time. Second, you need an air-charging unit somewhere in the room, and it's currently about the size of a medium-sized ottoman, so it's not exactly svelte. Third, it's only 5 watts of power, which is the same that old wireless charging pads put out before we all decided that that was way too slow. And finally, how much power will the charging station use to put out that 5 watts of wireless charging? That is a very big, unanswered question. Wireless charging pads are already not the most efficient, and that power only has to travel over a few centimeters. Lobbing a charge across the room like Zeus's nerdy cousin seems like it would require even more power to charge over long distances, and I just have to wonder at the long-term viability of that. I have no doubt that we'll get there someday. I just don't think that that day is anywhere soon, regardless of what Xiaomi says. And then this week, Xiaomi introduced a four-sided waterfall display on a phone, which is exactly the nightmare you think it sounds like. Yes, the curved display will wrap around all four sides of the phone, leaving you virtually no place to hold it. The four corners will have the weird-looking bumper things on them because I guess you have to have a body somewhere. The phone will have no ports either, so wireless charging and software buttons, I guess. And I get it, this will probably be the closest we'll get to a bezel-less display and an immersive experience on a phone. But in my world, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Regardless, we'll probably see this in a consumer product before the air charge, so we'll go with it for now. I think I'll just pass on doing a review on it when it does come out, though. A couple of months ago, Apple declared that app developers would have to start attaching privacy, air quotes, nutrition labels on all apps in the App Store. These labels would indicate what kinds of permissions an app asked for and why. Well, it turns out, according to a study by the Washington Post, that those labels are wildly inaccurate. And the reason is very simple. The labels are self-reported. You see, Apple doesn't scan the app or use the app to determine what it's gonna ask for. It just asks the developer, hey, what are you looking for? And the developers are like, oh, me? No, nothing. And Apple's like, okay, have a nice day. And that's the end of it. Frankly, This is kind of how it has to be. Apple has to automate the process somehow, and if an app is going to ask permission, Apple can scan the app and see that function, but then developers will just figure out a way to have Apple not see it, and then Apple will have to scan for that new way, and round and round we go. Apple has to take developers at their word because that's really the only way to automate this process, and that's the biggest problem with companies like Apple and Facebook and Google. They live and die by self-reporting and automation because there's too too much volume of content to not do that. So you end up with self reporting like you do at the Canadian border. You say nope, nothing to declare and then off you go with your car full of cigarettes. So I've had this review unit of my Samsung Galaxy S21 for about a week now and holy balls on a stick. This camera is so much fun to play with. Stay tuned for the review of the phone coming in a few weeks, but for now, let's just say the camera is pretty baller. I took a handheld shot of a moon with this phone the other night, and it is amazing And it seemed that way to Raymond Wong at Input Bag as well, because he started looking into it. Basically, the myth is that Samsung is using some kind of AI magic to show you details of the moon that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Basically, they're like superimposing an image of the moon over the moon. And I can kind of see where those conspiracy theories are coming from, because on my end, when I was trying to take the photo, all I saw was this big, gigantic ball of light in my field of view, until suddenly it just snapped into focus, and I was like, holy crap crap, and I was actually so amazed I almost forgot to take the picture. So Wong decided to dig into this, enlisting the help of Michael Fisher and Max Weinbach of Android Police. That, coupled with statements from Samsung, and Wong thinks he has it figured out. Basically, the AI on the camera has a scene detection feature which will recognize objects like the moon, and in an instant, optimize every possible setting to give you the best possible shot of that moon. Add to that some software magic to give you that super zoom and blammo, instant moon photo. Wong even took a DSLR with a $2,000 telephoto lens and shot side by side with it. And dear listeners, the Galaxy took the top spot and it wasn't even close. It was actually pretty insane. This is all a much abbreviated version of the story. So by all means, check out the link in the show notes and read it for yourself. It is quite a journey. Google announced this week that it was shutting down its first-party Stadia gaming studio and laying off hundreds of developers. Stadia will continue on as a third-party only platform, and this is just typical, Google. Most experts agree that it takes three to four years to develop a game, and Google tried to do it in 14 months. It's like they finally figured out that this was going to cost them a bunch of money while making zero dollars in return, and and that's fine, except Google also poached talent from a number of other AAA studios. In order to bring them aboard the Stadia train, and then it shut down that train mere months later, and by the way, years before any reasonable person could have expected to make a game. It's kind of a crappy thing to do, but then again... It's also very Google. Google will get a great idea and then play with it for a while and then set it off to the side and tell it to go play like a good little boy or girl. And then when the play date is over, Google will be shocked that the child doesn't already have a PhD and six-figure income and then take that kid right back to the dog pound And yes, I'm mixing my metaphors again, but you know what I mean. Google didn't understand how long it takes to develop a AAA game title and was surprised when it took longer than a year, so it decided to just go home, which is a major bummer for the talent that left good jobs to watch Google throw a temper tantrum. Very not cool, Google. Apple has been pretty well siloed for, you know, its entire life and has been content to just sit back and let all other tech companies pretty much go screw themselves. But this week saw Apple release a Google Chrome extension that basically gives Chrome users access to their iCloud keychains this is a pretty cool move for me who uses both Google and Chrome and iOS on the regular. And actually, strangely enough, I haven't gotten around to downloading the Chrome extension yet. Possibly because I don't trust it? I mean... What is Apple's game here? Anyway, you can pick up the extension in the Chrome store and tie it to your iCloud account. From there, the extension will give you passwords for the websites and services that you log into. It's a nice little bridge between the two platforms, and I'm happy to see it. Now let's just put iMessage on Android and we can all be happy together, huh? Too ambitious? Yeah. Too ambitious. Okay. Amazon unveiled plans for its Arlington County, Virginia headquarters this week, and it's called The Helix. It's a spiral-shaped building that extends into the sky and is covered in trees and green spaces. It's been called beautiful and eye-catching, but... I gotta say, I'm not alone here. To me, it kind of looks like a giant poop emoji covered in trees. That's right, I said it. Amazon executives are gonna be living in a poop emoji in Virginia. And by the way, I'm not the only one who said it. In fact, 20 minutes after I said it on Twitter, The Verge published a story with the headline that it's a glass poop emoji covered in trees. Now, I'm not gonna say that The Verge stole my idea. Indeed, it was a pretty fast turnaround from when I said that to when they said it. And I think it was a genuine case of great minds thinking alike because come on people it it looks like a giant poop in the middle of downtown and it's hilarious and i can't wait till it's built so i can travel there and take photos of it and mock it relentlessly because it's a giant poop emoji in the middle of downtown and i left out the best part This new headquarters is gonna cost 2.5 billion with a B dollars to build and that is just amazing. To think that so much time and so much money will go into such a ridiculous idea it's just delightful. And I mean, if they wanted to save that $2.5 billion and kick me some, I'd happily accept it. It could even be my job to send them a daily poop emoji to remind them of how close they came to building a giant poop emoji. I'd be great at it, and I could even do this job from home. I wouldn't even have to come into the poop-shaped office to do it. And speaking of Amazon, Jeff Bezos told investors this week that he was stepping down as CEO of Amazon later this year and just, what? That's right, Jeff Bezos will no longer be the face of the company he founded. He'll be replaced by Andy Jazzhands. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He will be replaced by Andy Jazzhands. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He will be replaced by Andy Jazzhands jazz hands i'm uh, I'm sorry okay he will be replaced by andy jassy and can i just say jazz queen and if you think i'm done with these jokes you are clearly a new listen to the show and welcome pull up a chair and enjoy the ride bezos is stepping down but will continue in the company as executive chair and will still be freaking rich as hell by the way But Bezos wants to spend more time on his other projects like Blue Origin and the Washington Post, and that makes sense. Basically, Amazon is a gigantic ship that's just going to keep on plowing through everything that comes up against it. So there's very little harm in just turning over the reins to someone else. I mean, what are they going to do? Build a giant poop emoji in the middle of a downtown somewhere? Oh... Well, in the meantime, maybe we'll get more competition in the space sector, which would be a great time. In the meantime, Jacido Domingo can keep the Amazon train a-rolling. The world's first 3D-printed home is officially for sale in upstate New York. It's listed at a price of $300,000 for a three-bedroom, two-bath, so if you were wondering if 3D printing was going to produce cheaper houses, the answer is... Not so far, but the concept is still kind of cool. Basically, take a 3D cement printer the size of a Buick, put it on a gantry, and it zips all around and lays down the foundation and the walls of the house. On the outside, you can see the layering of the concrete, which is neat from a nerdy perspective. The listing advertises that you can be a part of history by buying the first printed house for sale, which is nice and all. But hardly a reason to drop 300 grand, though in that neighborhood the average price of a house is closer to 500, so maybe it is a good deal. What I don't understand is how a 3D printer lays down pipe and electricity through the wall, because that's usually where that stuff goes. Also, the roof is still made of wood and shingles, which seems I don't know, anticlimactic? Like, shouldn't the whole thing be printed? If you still have to get union contractors in there to build stuff, I'm not sure how cheap this will ever be. But anyway, it seems that the 3D house printing revolution has started, so at the very least it'll be interesting to see where this ride takes us. Huawei has famously been cut off from the Google Teat for, what is it, two years at this point? But the company said... Ain't no thing. We got our own operating system called Harmony OS, and it's the shiz, but... Here's the thing. Ars Technica took a deep dive into the operating system, and they published their results, and that's not why I'm reporting this story. I'm reporting this story because, as I've said in the past, Huawei is shady AF as a company, and this story did nothing to convince me otherwise because Ron Amadeo at Ars outlined the process he had to take just to get access to the beta SDK of Harmony OS 2.0, and I'm going to read this whole quote from Ars. Quote, Huawei requires you to go to Huawei.com, make an account, and then sign up to be a developer by passing, air quotes, identity verification. This means sending Huawei your name, address, email address, phone number, and pictures of your ID which is a driver's license or a passport, and a photo of your credit card. You must then wait one to two business days while someone at Huawei manually reviews your application. Huawei helpfully knows that it will not charge your credit card. So, (laughs) yikes. Amadeo points out the laborious steps that you have to take to get to the SDKs for Google and Apple, and it's just a chore i mean for google's now stay with me here through this long explanation you have to go to google.com and in the search bar type android sdk and click on the first link that's it that's the process Apple is a little bit more strict since they require you to use a MacBook to the absolute surprise of no one. So to say that Huawei is a little militant about the process is saying that, like, Fort Knox has a couple of guards at the vault. So why is Huawei so secretive about its operating system? Well, basically because it's a fork of Android with very little changed about it. Like, at all. Like... Basically, nothing has changed except that it's Android 10 instead of Android 11. Whoa! Well played, Huawei. We'll never suspect a thing. You got us fooled. And finally, SpaceX's Starlink project has a little over 10,000 users getting... INTERNET FROM SPACE! The service, which launched in beta just three months ago, costs $99 per month, with a $499 due upfront for the satellite dish and the Wi-Fi router in the startup kit. Starlink reported that a majority of users are receiving around 100 megabits per second down and 20 up, which is a very respectable speed. Latency is in the sub-31 seconds neighborhood, which is also very respectable. SpaceX has over 1,000 satellites in orbit at present and hopes to have over 11,000 when all is said and done somewhere around 2024-2025. Still, for the price, it's a little steep, but for the folks out in the middle of nowhere, that seems very well worth it. I'm not in the middle of nowhere, so I'm going to stick with my provider, but if you are, that might be worth it. Back-end application, API, bugs, attachment DevOps, back frameworks, backward, backward, component, oriented, band, natural manager, language, process, software, blue, text, text editor, editor, book, off-control, web, web server. Web Welcome to Tech
1: Yeah! Tech Yeah!
0: This week on Tech Yeah, I want to chat about my friends from TCL. TCL sent over the TCL Move Audio S150 earbuds for me to check out, and I've been using them as my daily headphones for a few weeks now. By the way, this week on the YouTube channel, I'm posting their unboxing, and that's a little weird that I'm posting the unboxing on the same day as a mini-review. yeah, and what you gonna say about it? Uh Uh-huh, thought so. Anyway, these earbuds are tiny little guys that come with a small white case, and when I say is tiny, I mean tiny. The case itself is only 5 centimeters square. Inside, you'll find two earbuds that definitely don't look like a popular competitor that will remain nameless. The buds stick in the case magnetically, and when you take them out and put them back in, they always snap right where they're supposed to go, which is just fun. The buds themselves hold a charge of an advertised and a half hours of playback and the case holds enough charge for around 20 hours and that's consistent with my testing but i admit i never had a three and a half hour listening session Regardless, they're not the longest-lasting earbuds in the world, but I've definitely had worse. The case, by the way, charges with USPC, which is a must in 2021, frankly. The earbuds are touch-sensitive, which means you can control calls, music track skipping, and your digital assistant with a series of taps on one earbud or the other. There is no volume control, which is very unfortunate, and the sensitivity on the tapping seems a bit too sensitive. Like, I'll go to just push an earbud deeper into my ear, and all of a sudden I'm talking to Siri, and trust me, no one ever wants to talk to Siri. Speaking of which, these earbuds are shaped like those other earbuds that are made by that nameless competitor, although I just referenced Siri, so you probably know who I'm talking about. These earbuds don't have any silicon tips on them. They just hook into your ears and kind of sit there. There's no isolation whatsoever with these buds, which is fine if you're out on the road or biking or running, but when you're trying to ride a train or just enjoy some peace and quiet, these will not drown out surrounding noise and they might require you to turn up the volume, which is bad for your overall hearing health. That said, the buds do not shake loose when you engage in physical activity. You probably won't lose them running or shaking your head, so they're secure in that way. The earbuds support Bluetooth 5.0, which means there's very low latency between a playing video and the buds themselves. There's no disconnect when someone moves their mouse and the sound comes out a second later, and that's important in true wireless earbuds, and TCL has that absolutely right, at least with an iPhone Pro. The overall sound is good. You get a nice balanced soundstage in bass, highs, and midrange. They're very enjoyable to listen to many kinds of music, like metal or rock or metal or... Hip hop or metal, and okay, yeah, I just listen to metal. But anyway, the best part is they cost less than forty dollars, and you can pick them up on Amazon. And it just so happens I've helpfully provided a little linky poo on of a doubt.com so go check them out. And if you pick one up, I'll get a little cut, and you'll have my thanks. Our next guest once said he had a goal to drive as many cars as possible in his lifetime, which makes him perfect to talk about electric vehicles. He's the executive editor of SlashGear, where he's been working since 2006. That's 14 years, people. And he's such a prolific writer, he published two stories while I wrote this introduction. He recently became my neighbor in the Midwest, which means I owe him a cup of coffee. And as soon as this pandemic stuff is behind us... He'll get it. For now, we'll offer him a virtual cup of joe while we sit down and chat about electric
1: vehicles. Chris Davies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, very excited, Uh, especially about the Midwest and the coffee part. I mean, I I didn't realize that that was the official thing, but I am always willing to, to to a fault to go after people who say they will offer me coffee. It's I've ended up in so many vans that way.
0: Right. Well, I mean, oh, for sure. I mean, it's not an official Midwest rule, more of like an unwritten thing. So, but, yeah, um, you right. know, it's 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 yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you live in the suburbs then you're issued copies of Farm and Fleet magazine. So, you know, that's just how it works. Go so ahead. anyway, welcome to the Midwest. <laughs> but I want to uh, I want to kick off our conversation by talking about electric vehicles. And this is another one of the ongoing pseudo series of uh, state of the uh, podcast that I've been doing regarding various aspects of the industry and electric vehicles is one that it's, it's, it's always been kind of like an aspirational thing for me. Like Mm -hmm. I would love to own an electric vehicle, mostly because I never go anywhere, but I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to talk to you about like what's going on with EVs these days and how we got here, where we're going, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So if you, if you could, why don't you give us a little bit of your background in the, in the automotive I don't I don't want to say automotive industry because I know you're you know obviously you're a writer and an executive editor but like where does where does your interest in automobilia come from
1: so i uh, yeah i don't i Industry would be a bad word because I don't know how to build right. a car. I would never want to. If, right. if I told you why I'd attach the tires to a car, you should not get into that car. It would be incredibly dangerous. Um,
0: but yeah. At so least I, until you reattach them. But yeah. That's true.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you just sit in it, it's fine. It might wobble a little, but yeah. just don't don't drive in it. Lord, no. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've always been interested in cars. When I first started out writing all those years ago, thank you for... For calculating that. That's great. Um, makes me feel wonderful uh, on a Friday. Um, I was we Well, for about, the record, you look a lot younger than I do, so <laughs> you're fine. I, so. I inject a lot of placenta. So, um, yeah, when I first started writing, I wrote about tech um, and it was just tech, basically, you know, phones and computers and all of the kind of the normal things that people get excited about. Always was interested in cars, kind of in my spare time, read about them, kind of kept up on the industry. Uh, and then, I don't know, about six or seven years ago, I suppose, the cars just started getting geekier. And at the same time, the nice. car companies started to decide, well, hang on, we have this audience of people who write about kind of traditional cars, traditional angle for kind of a traditional car audience. But we'd actually like to kind of capture some of the attention of the people who are coming at it from People who are used to, you know, having a smartphone that they upgrade every year or maybe people who know about tablets or computers or know about software, maybe people who are more interested in what's running on the touchscreen in their car rather than what's underneath the engine or the hood. So we kind of came at it from that angle. And since then, the two have sort of come together and kind of there's been like a meshing point where cars are tech and tech is cars. And I get as excited about a big, ridiculous supercar engine as I do about uh, zero emissions, green, electric, plug-in vehicle. But I think there is a place for everything. Um, yeah, uh, preferably on my driveway. But yeah, I think there is a place for everything.
0: And, you know, I can I could definitely relate to that. Last year in 2019, I attended the Chicago Auto Show on behalf of Board at Work. And I didn't really have an assignment. I just kind of wanted to go and see what was going on there. And it was really easy to, like, nerd out over, like, all the Tech that was just packed into cars these days, like forget wheels, forget engines, like that's that that stuff's all fine. But like holy crap, that's like an, a a touch screen that's like the size of a football field in the in the middle of this car, and you know so I mean it's it, it's definitely a natural intersection. And I bet you know to speak to your point, I bet if car manufacturers could talk to the same people that upgrade their phones every year, if we can get them to upgrade their cars every year, holy crap, we're gonna be rolling in it.
1: That'd be amazing.
0: <laughs> I don't think so, but. Uh, um so thank uh, you know, thank you for the for the background as to like how you got into this and it's it's really fascinating, especially when you get into electric cars, because I think there's a kind of like a kind of like a, a nerd intersection there where you you know, where you're not only talking about like you know, you're not only talking about horsepower, but now you're talking about like all the tech that can get packed into a car, which is, which is really interesting, you know, as far as like, and it seems like more so with EVs than like with even regular cars that have like a ton of stuff packed into them these days as well. So, Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you just a few questions about like, How we've gotten here so far, like what are some of the biggest hurdles that the automotive industry has had to clear in order to put electric vehicles? I wouldn't say I I wouldn't actually. Yeah, let's call it. Let's just say electric vehicles are somewhat mainstream. Maybe they're not a majority and probably not even like a big minority. But still, electric vehicles are kind of a thing that are in the public consciousness. So like what hurdles had to be overcome to get where we are today?
1: I mean I think I think you're right they are a minority mainstream but they are certainly something that are on people's radars and a lot of people are like you that you know that you would they would love an opportunity or the excuse maybe to go for something electric I think the biggest hurdle at first was the industry not really being willing to take it seriously they were making plenty of money from um traditional gas and diesel cars maybe you know Toyota had kind of done that the the hybrid prius thing where it was wasn't a plug-in hybrid you know you just kind of charged up a little battery as you went along and then it used that a little bit mm-hmm. but it wasn't like you were driving on all electric power really um and so it took kind of like a big change and i think you know for better or worse tesla has been a huge motivator in that transition you know that suddenly someone came along and said well we don't have that history. We don't have that kind of legacy of old cars to sell. We are just focused on selling new cars and we are going to relentlessly target an earlier doctor audience who just so happens to also often be quite rich and they like easy okay. things. And we will take the model of smartphones and computers and we will apply that to electric vehicles. And then a lot of people in the in the traditional industry did not take that seriously either, and then I think have realized over the years, oh well hang on. This is actually something that's going to happen now.
0: With Tesla building this gigantic infrastructure across the United States, and especially being proprietary like that, isn't that going to hold back some of the some of the rest of the competitors out there? I mean, is Tesla making a mistake by like not licensing this technology to other
1: cars, or are they te- are they licensing it? How's that work, Chris? So they do <laughs> not. <laughs> no, so they don't license it. They don't allow any other <laughs> companies to to do that. There have been Various calls at various times for them to do that, but at the moment, Mm -hmm. publicly anyway, there is no indication that that is something they are planning to do. And you're right; it's an enormous investment. It was a huge kind of undertaking for Tesla at the beginning, but it was very much a kind of a chicken and egg situation. And when they first launched the well, the Roadster originally, but really the Supercharger network really first kind of started becoming a thing with the original Model S. And it was this idea Mm -hmm. of well, okay, it's a chicken and egg. You know, people are not going to buy electric cars unless there is an infrastructure network there where they can charge them. And they're not going to use an infrastructure network unless there is an electric car that they actually want to buy. And so they decided to do both. And it's quite ironic, really, because actually, if you look at the the actual usage statistics, over 90% of electric car charging happens either at home or at the office. You know, so people are plugging in. Hmm. And it's usually when it's plugged in, like in a garage or on a driveway at home, and then maybe they drive to the office and they plug in and charge there. And the average American apparently drives around at most thirty-five miles a day. So mm. if you actually look at the kind of the demands for charging and you look at the demands for actual electric driving, they're not huge. And it's certainly they're not huge in terms of having a a cross net a cross nation charging network that people will need to use. You know, the I'm sure there are people out there who have a Tesla who maybe have never even plugged in at a supercharger. But I think there is a huge okay. mental kind of stumbling block there where people are like, oh well hang on. You know, you can tell them you, you, you're only on average going to be driving 35 miles a day. And they're like, mm, but what if I need to drive 200 miles in one day? Right. Or what if I right. suddenly need to go from the suburbs of Chicago and I need to be in L.A. And I have to use my Tesla to do it or I have to use my electric car to do it. And there, there is this kind of like we are used to the paradigm of a gas station. We, you know we, we are used to this right. idea that you can yeah. go in and in about five or six minutes you can fill the tank up and you know that, you know, gasoline is gasoline is gasoline it doesn't really matter where you're on the country you're probably going to be within a few minutes a few miles of a gas station if you really need sure to. and so it was a big mental stumbling block that i kind of think that again a lot of the traditional automakers didn't really take seriously and there was this assumption of well we can leave it to kind of the private industry to to build up these electric charging networks, and we will make the cars, and the people will come, and they will be happy, and they will drive, and all of these kind of mental kind of hurdles will just disappear. And it kind of didn't really happen that way.
0: I'm learning so much on this podcast. I love it. Thank you so much for. <laughs> I'm gonna just halfway through. I'm gonna say thank you very much for coming on because this is a really fun conversation. So, so now here here's where we are right now, and uh, I, I was just wondering. Who is one electric vehicle company that's quietly making waves in the industry that – or who's like a company to watch in the electric vehicle space that maybe, maybe the public doesn't really know about yet?
1: I think that there are – there are two ways of answering that because you know I can't just give you one okay. single answer in a name. So on the one hand, I think that you have kind of the upstarts. So you have people like Rivian who are based out in Detroit. And Mm -hmm. they are building a. They built their own electric car platform, and they are building a an SUV and a pickup truck that are going to supposedly go into production maybe by the end of this year or beginning of next year. And they've had big investment from Ford, from Amazon, from a variety of other different companies. They've inked a deal with Amazon to provide tens of thousands of electric custom delivery vehicles that they're going to be um, providing to them over the next kind of decade. So that's one. Company that's kind of up and coming. Um, Okay. And then I think at the same time, you also have companies that maybe are more traditionally associated with gas cars like Ford, like GM, like uh, Volkswagen Group, who have been kind of quietly beavering away on electrification strategies and who were kind of only just now starting to actually see the results of that investment. And I think what makes that interesting is that they are not just planning for one car. You know, they're not just saying, well, okay. We're going to compete with just the Tesla Model Three, for instance. We're going to make a, you know, thirty-five right. to fifty-five thousand dollar sort of compact luxury car, and that's going to be the thing that we're doing. They're saying, well, okay, we need a platform. We need something that can be used if your VW Group it has to be used by, like Skoda or Seat or VW cars in Europe. You know, brands that we don't get here, but the kind of would traditionally be very affordable. And it has to go all the way up and be usable by Audi and Porsche and Bentley even. And that kind of same kind of technology and hardware has to be flexible enough that we can make a tiny little city hatchback that maybe we'll sell in Spain or in the UK or in France or whatever. But it also has to be able to make um, the kind of big three row SUV or pickup truck that people in America like.
0: Enjoying this interview? Did you know that there are over 10 more minutes of time where we talked that ended up on the bonus version? The full interview is available to all of my patrons right now over at patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. For as little as $2 per month, you can get in on the ground floor of this podcast and help support the show. Plus, you'll get additional benefits like access to my Discord, early podcasts, bonus live shows, and so much more. Just go to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. That's patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. And if you don't want to be a patron, that's okay too. Full interviews become available at the beginning of each new month. So for example, trimmed interviews in January, will have the full versions on February 1st. I don't want you to miss out. Just head over to patreon.com slash benefit of the doubt. And you can listen to the full interviews, even if you don't subscribe because I still want you to love the show. There are more great options for helping me out at slash support. That's slash support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options all wrapped up in a neat little package at slash support. I hope you visit, I hope you take in some full interviews, and as always, I thank you for listening. And overall, and I, I'm not sure how much of an environmental expert you are, so I, I, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to hedge th- this question. I've trade. Okay, I'm going to hedge this question by thinking that you may have like no idea, and it'll end up on the cutting room floor. So uh, that being said is a shift from gas powered vehicles to electric vehicles going to be the best thing for this this planet <laughs> as as far as we know. I mean, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of research out there that indicates that, you know, some batteries are actually worse for the environment than a gas powered car and, you know, what's going to happen to all these batteries when we dispose of them in 8 to 12 years? So, so uh, can you speak to that at all? I mean, is that is that any is that anywhere on your radar or if- Am I just
1: Yeah, okay. I think I think that it you kind of have to look at it in a an, an holistic way. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's I don't think that people getting into electric cars is on its own going to solve all of the problems. Because oh, sure. at the end of the day you start to charge the car up and it's like where is that power coming from? Is that from a renewable source or is that from, you know, a coal power station right. somewhere, in which case all you're really doing is kind of shifting the emissions from one place to right. another. I think that definitely there is, this is something that, you know, people are thinking about and being forced to think about, you know, and a lot of it does come with things like political pressure, which, you know, varies depending on which country you're (laughs) in at the moment um, as to how much of a need there is for that or a perceived need. I think that, you know, all of the different individual parts. So like you say, like, what do we do with the batteries afterwards? Well, there are various different kind of Movements at the moment, only within the past few months, you know, one of the biggest battery suppliers in China announced that they have come up with a new battery technology, which they believe will give these, these batteries much longer lifespan. You know that they will degrade in the amount of power that they can hold much slower. Right, and so there is the potential there for them to be taken out of one car when it maybe is you know, eight or 10 years old and then put into a second car, you know, when it has like a, a second lifespan in another vehicle. Mm. Or, you know, they take the batteries out and they put them into a, like a, a fixed architecture and they they work as a, a battery backup perhaps. Or like a store, temporary storage thing maybe for a renewable source like solar or wind. So, that, you know, when the wind is not blowing, you still have a kind of a consistent power. sure. Component. And sure. that can be done on a kind of a local level, you know, whether that's like an individual house having a battery backup, or it can be done on kind of a, you know a power station sort of level where you have a huge array of these batteries all fitted together and they they act as this kind of soak for excess power when it's not needed and then give it out when it does need it and you know you don't need to generate more. So I think there are lots of sort of individual things being done to address that kind of long term how is this actually going to make the country the, the world greener rather than just more free flowing on the freeway. Um, but I think that. I mean, while I would love to think that everyone getting rid of their gas car and getting into an electric car would make a huge difference, I think that part of the issue is, you know, if you look at how much pollution comes from cargo ships, for instance, or the cruise industry, or the power that we need to run air conditioners because we live in incredibly hot areas or live in incredibly cold areas and need to run heating all the time and we don't really have a kind of a unified power policy or anything like that. Um, I think there is... I think that personal responsibility is really important and I think it's definitely something that we should be thinking about. But I think that there are also things that are just out there contributing 90 odd percent of greenhouse gases and emissions (laughs) and things that also, you know, you could kill yourself and knock yourself out with kind of feeling guilty about, oh, I'm driving my Corvette, you know, and I'm emitting all of these emissions. But, you know, your emissions are a drop in the ocean compared to an oil tanker, for instance, bringing gasoline around the world. I, I think that you can't really look at it as a, a single one issue thing. It's not like an individual thing, though there is an individual component to it. I think we just have to, as consumers, be more willing to ask, well, what are you doing in the bigger picture here? You know, where are you making your energy? How are you making sure that this is not destroying the world for someone else's children who I don't have?
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So... Uh, okay, so I'm 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 going to start wrapping things up because you know I I think I've kept you about as long <laughs> as I promised, so I appreciate that. Just had <laughs> one kind of like one more no like kind of big question for you. And um, what are some of the logistics that a, a consumer needs to know before they go out and shop for slash buy an electric vehicle? Like, what are some of the things that you know maybe maybe you know like um, like a like an FAQ? I don't want to say an FAQ, but like, what are some of the things that people should be aware? of before they start, you know, before they put themselves in the market.
1: I think there are are a couple of things that kind of, you know, make sense to have figured out before you do it. And one of them is kind of the awareness that a lot of the time, especially with the traditional automakers, the people in the dealerships, some of them aren't great, (laughs) certainly about talking about electric cars. They don't care about it. They don't know enough about it. They haven't done their research, their homework, for whatever reason. And so I'd say don't kind of be disillusioned if you go in and find someone who's just like, oh, yeah, that, that one's electric, but, you know, you don't want that. You know, you want this big SUV. And I think if that's the response you get, you know, you say, oh, thank you so much, Sarah, madam, and I'm going to go and talk to someone else. Right, right. So I think that, unfortunately, you do sometimes just have to kind of do your own homework. But sure. The better thing about that is that, you know, there is a lot more information out there. I think kind of having an understanding of how you plan on using a car is really important. And that sounds like an obvious thing. But you know that might just be sort of sitting down and saying, well, okay, in the past week, in the past month, how did I, how, where did I drive? Right. You know, how often did I drive? How often was the car parked, and where? What kind of places did I go? And maybe sort of saying, well, okay, while I'm at these places, while I go to a shopping centre, for instance, or drop kids off at school, I'm going to have a look around and see, you know, is there a, is there a place that I could have charged up the car and maybe just added, even if it was like slow, you know, adding a few miles on. Sometimes that can really help. Yeah. You know, just every little bit sort of adds up. And there are apps out there or websites that you can go and kind of look and see where public charges are. There's PlugShare is one of the big ones. And that shows you from all of the different networks kind of where there is a charger. And that's a really good way of kind of figuring out, well, okay, is there the infrastructure around that I can make use of? So that was one thing. And then that helps you obviously decide, well, what kind of range am I looking for? Because, you know, we see cars out there with everything from just over 100 miles of range up to three getting on for 400 miles of range yeah. and with prices that kind of vary too so i think kind of having an idea of well okay is this a realistic thing is my lifestyle suited to electrification and is electrification suited to my lifestyle and then thinking about really the most the biggest priority is are you going to be able to charge it at home because like i said 90% or something of of charging of evs actually happens when people are at home so that if you have a garage fantastic if you have a garage do you have a a 220, 240 outlet in there because that means that you can get a a high-power charger which will maybe charge up your car in four hours rather than leaving it plugged in on like a regular outlet for 24 hours or more. And so that's obviously a big kind of usability thing. And it doesn't mean that you can't get by if you only have like a regular outlet. But if you have high-powered one, a level two charger, as they call them, then that just makes life so much easier. And if you can have that installed, it might cost you, you know, a few hundred dollars to have an electrician come out and put like an outlet in and they look a little bit like the ones that you would plug a, an appliance like a, like a dryer. in. Right, right. And when it comes to actually buying the electric charger itself, it's worth actually checking with things like your electricity company because a lot of them have rebates and things and schemes that will give you maybe four or five hundred dollars or more to have that equipment installed and fitted so that, you know, the kind of, because they want to offset it and they get their own incentives for kind of moving people onto using more electricity. Yeah, yeah. So I think doing the kind of homework there, because there's a surprising number all around the the country of different promotions and things that different states offer, you know, and so there's the the kind of the one incentive that people know about, I think, is the the US federal tax credit. Right. Which a lot of the car companies still qualify for, which is like a $7,500 of tax credit if you buy an EV. And usually if you lease an EV, the, the the company that you lease it from, actually, they take the tax credit and then your, your monthly payments go down as well. But, you know, check the fine print on that. Right. But actually, different individual states have different credits as well. And so it's worth looking into where you live and what they might be offering and then going and looking at your power company, for instance, and saying, well, you know, do you offer anything? And sometimes it even comes down to like a district level, you know, of if your local council might have like a scheme where you might get a few hundred dollars or something for it, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a huge amount necessarily, but it, you know, every little helps yeah. and that might get you set up with a charger, for instance, at home. And so you don't then have to worry so much about well, where am I going to charge him? How long is it going to take? So I think those kind of would be the the starting points for me. I would say kind of, you know, do I have somewhere to charge it? Is this actually going to fit in with my, my lifestyle? And kind of what are the sort of the incentives out there, which will, kind of make this easier for me and maybe take off some of the 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 headache of paying for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's maybe some of the stuff that people don't think about so much because you know they just think oh I'm just going to go out and buy a car and you don't have to think about really you know where am I going to get gas from if you're buying a gas car. It's just you know it, you know I I know where that will be from but maybe doing some of the homework and also being willing to say well you know at the moment, maybe electrification is not for me, or maybe I'll go for a plug-in hybrid because I like to have the backup reassurance of a gas engine there, you know, and I can maybe charge up sometimes. And if I don't have the chance to charge up, you know, I, I can run on gas power as well. You know, right. we're, we're in a really interesting phase at the moment as there's kind of like a slow transition and not every one vehicle fits every one person.
0: Right. Nice. Nice. So when do you take delivery on
1: your Cybertruck? <laughs> do you know, I did not <laughs> actually reserve one. Um. I... I
0: yeah. All right, Chris. Um, well, <laughs> yes. I again, I have kept you about uh, much longer than I thought I was going to and, you know, because it, it's been an awesome conversation. So, right now I just want to go ahead and roll out the carpet for you and you can let everybody know where they can find you and, you know, what you're doing on the internet these days.
1: Um so I, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Davies, um, where I occasionally talk about work and occasionally talk about cats and occasionally talk about cars. Um Oh, and food. I'm often talking about food as well. Um, And you can also find me at slashgear.com where we write about technology and cars and shiny things and um, not so shiny things. And yeah, and that's pretty much where you can find whatever we have been driving or playing with recently.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time to come on and chat about electric vehicles. And uh, I hope I can have you on again soon sometime.
1: I would love that. Thank you for having me
0: so that's going to do it for this podcast i'd like to thank chris davies for coming on and chatting all about electric vehicles not just tesla but you know mostly tesla i'd like to thank cliff thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes but most of all and as always i'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.